Well, dear friends, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 John in chapter 3. 1 John in chapter 3. <clears throat> this morning, we are reflecting again on the attributes of our Father's love. And I hope that as we've done this, made our way through a topical series, that it's building in your mind and heart a sort of iron castle of truth, one of the Father's unconquerable and never-ceasing love, so that you may take refuge in that castle of truth. We've seen a lot of things over these last few weeks. I want to remind you of them briefly before we read our text. We've seen how our Father has loved us when we were unlovable. His love is unconditional. We've seen that His love for us will never stop, never have any gaps, because there has never been a point in time in which our Father didn't love us and His Son. His love is everlasting. We have seen that His love will never go through variations or shadows subject to change. His love is unchangeable. That love has been demonstrated extravagantly in the gift of God's own Son for us. And as such, that love can never be interrupted. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, we are to eye these truths so that we would believe them and receive them. And to further press the truth of the love of God to our hearts this morning, we are going to examine the lavish love of our God, which is sovereignly poured out upon us. Several different places we could go to see this. Ephesians 1, Romans 9. But I want us to look here in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-3. to 3. And let me pray, and then we'll read our text together. O Lord our God, we come in gratefulness that You are a God who has spoken to us. And we pray that the same Spirit who moved in men, that they would write Your very Word, would move in us to understand the Word, to read it, to receive it, to mark it, to inwardly digest what You give to us in the Scripture. And Lord, we pray that You would use Your very Word to sanctify us, to lead us into the deeper understanding of the love You have for us in Your Son. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord? 1 John 3, verses 1-3. to See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Well, this is God's Word, and may He bless it to our hearts. Please be seated. <clears throat> John's first epistle 
is written to settle believers in the wake of deep controversy, likely in the church at Ephesus. A group of people have left the church, departed from the fellowship of the saints, and they're saying things like this. Jesus Christ didn't really come in the flesh. He only seemed to be in our likeness. Further, they were claiming that to know God has really no bearing on any question of sin. In fact, you can know God and walk in persistent sin. These people who left are not keeping the commandments of God. Ironically, they're also some of them claiming that they don't have any sin. They didn't love the brethren. And they were saying, those who don't follow us don't really know God. As you can imagine, such a situation would be very upsetting to the people in the church. And John writes this letter to seek to correct the lies of the false teachers who've left. But more than that, he wants to comfort these believing brethren who remain in the church. And he writes to assure those who do believe in the name of the Son of God that they may know they have eternal life. So while John is on the one hand exposing false teaching, he's also writing on the other hand to bolster the confidence of the faithful. Now John does this throughout his letter by relating what many have called tests. Doctrinal tests, moral tests, social tests. Truths to expose the hypocrite, but more importantly, truths to reassure the genuine believer. Just prior to our text, you can look at this in chapter 2 and verse 28, John is fleshing out the moral test. He's explaining a true Christian is not someone who simply believes the right things. A true Christian is one who practices righteousness, who abides in communion with Christ, and that person will not have shame at the return of the Lord Jesus. John then says, and I do want you to look at this, verse 29 of chapter 2, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. In other words, John is saying, it's not the practice of righteousness that makes a person become a Christian. A Christian does righteousness because he has a new nature. He's been born of God, born again, born from above. He's been made new in Christ. So the Christian acts like what he now is, a child of God. And it's this thought of being born of Him, born from above, a favorite of John's, by the way. It's at the very heart of the Gospel that he wrote. John chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. It's also a major theme of this epistle. John will use this phrase, born of Him, nine times. But this is the first. And it's this thought that now takes John into an outburst of wonder at God's love to His children. We're going to track John's thinking here in three points. So see with me first the wonder of the Father's love. There in verse 1. The wonder of the Father's love. There have been times in all of our personal histories moments where we perhaps said to someone, hey, come look at this. Now sometimes those moments have been over ridiculous things like 
a YouTube video. Or maybe it's a, a play in a football game, which I'll do with my family. Or maybe it's a true moment to savior, to savor. One of our children maybe uttering those first words or, or taking that first tenuous step. Other times when we do this, it's grievous moments of national tragedy. The Space Shuttle Challenger, which I remember as a child. 9-11, the Boston bombing. These calamities captivate our attention and we call people to, to come and look and we are glued in to what's going on, at least for a season, to understand the situation. But then on a more positive note, there are spots in our lives, there are actually places in our land that are so filled with beauty, we are simply compelled to stop. To say, hey, look at this. And we gaze at the wonder of the scene. The wonder of a moment. Well, John in 1 John 3 verse 1 is giving us a call like that. Hey, come look at this. Only, it's not a depressing sight. It's not a silly sight. It's something beautiful. Something that is breathtaking. And we might miss the sense of what he's saying if we go with the ESV's way to render it. Simply, see. Or even the stronger in the New American Standard, behold. Actually, in the original, this is a command. And the idea is this. Stop. Stop everything that you're doing and look at this. Consider this truth. Because what I'm about to tell you is beyond your wildest imagination. It boggles the mind and you need to ponder it. You need to lock your eyes on this fact. Because this spiritual truth banishes what beclouds your soul. Now you've got to capture John's excitement out of the gate when you read this verse, which is a telling fact by itself. We can't be sure how old the Apostle John is at this point, but most likely this letter is written in the late 80s, early 90s AD. So let's say that John was in his early 20s at the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. That would put John in his 80s when he writes this letter. So what we have here is a man who's been walking with Jesus for 60 years. He's near the end of his life, but he's flourishing. He's bearing fruit in old age. He's full of sap and green, as the psalmist will put it, of how old people should be. Full of sap and green. He still gets excited about truths, and particularly the truth of the love of God. The wonder of sonship hasn't become old hat, dull, boring to his soul. It is thrilling to him. He's absolutely overwhelmed, overwhelmed, so overwhelmed that he wants every believer to stop and look at this. Marvel with me. Now dear friend, is there a place in your practice of the Christian life for the duty of marveling, of standing awestruck, of meditating on a mind-blowing truth and soaking it in like you're standing in front of the sun when it's setting and, and letting its beauty just hit you and you take it in. 
And some of what our hymns, I think, help us to do. I think here of William Gadsby's work, which we sing on occasion, High Beyond Imagination is the love of God to man. Far too deep for human reason. Fathom it. It never can. Love eternal richly dwells in Christ the Lamb. Some of us are at the stage in life where John was in his 80s. Some of us are fast approaching it. Are you still blown away at the sovereign mercy of God? Does your heart still get lost in holy wonder? It's as if in this text, John is shouting at us, do you realize the miracle of this glorious truth? And in fact, the older you get, the more you know about your sin, the more you understand of the holiness of God, the more that love, that adoption which has come to you, should stir your affections and provoke your joy. Christians should not be getting more and more sour as we get older. We should be full of sap and green because we are blown away at the love of God. And it should stir our hearts. See, behold, look, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children, or better, the sons of God. That's not to deprecate the ladies. The sons are the ones in the ancient world who get the inheritance. We get the inheritance. John's sense of astonishment is quite evident in the original. The word translated what kind of literally means of what country. The disciples used this in Matthew chapter 8 after Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves and the sea became perfectly calm. And amazed, they said, what kind of man is this? Or better, from what realm does this man come? that even the wind and the sea obey Him. Obviously, Jesus' power is unlike anything they've ever seen. It is out of this world. In a similar way, John is here saying, the Father's love is completely unearthly. It's not anything that we could compare it to in human experience, though we try. Because among people, there's only conditional love. There's love in response to something lovable. We love beauty. We love those who show us favor. We love those who love us back. But none of those statements can describe what John is making us to consider. In fact, none of those statements describe why the Father chose to bestow this alien or out-of-this-world love upon us. We did nothing to warrant this. We were by nature children of wrath. We were, to quote Paul in Titus 3, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. Sounds like a great group of people, doesn't it? And yet the Father, in His sovereign good pleasure, out of His heart of love, lavished His love upon us. And here in John's letter, as J.I. Packer puts it, the Apostle gives us two yardsticks for measuring the love of God. The first yardstick is the cross. 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do you know that God loves you? Here's how. 
He laid your curse on His own Son. He turned from Him to you by striking Him or not sparing Him and sparing you. He inflicted the fiery flames of His justice on Jesus that the refreshing streams of affection might fall on you. But then the second measuring stick of the Father's love is the doctrine of adoption. That we should be called the sons of God. You see, brethren, it's not just that Jesus has cleansed us of all of the spots of our sin. We aren't merely washed and made new. We have more than a righteous status through Christ. We're actually made a part of God's own family. So we don't just hear the judge tell us, not guilty, you won't die under the verdict of condemnation and curse. The judge does more than say no condemnation for this one. The judge comes down from the bench and he wraps his arms around us and he says, come home with me. Sit at my table as my son. We have a relationship with the Father through Christ. We can approach Him. We have the ear of God Almighty. We are co-heirs together with Christ, inheriting everything He purchased. This is marvelous. Love has been lavished upon us. An unceasing downpour of affection from heaven has washed over our souls so that now we, the sons of Adam, once alienated from God, once bound over to Satan, sin, and death, we now have been given a right to God's house. Why has this happened? It's because the Father loved us. It's in His very nature to love, but He chose to bestow this love upon us. In fact, the verb used here by John points to God's generous giving. It's the same verb James uses when he tells us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Same verb. Only here, we're not being invited to ask. It's simply love lavishly given to us. And with this new identity, our new perspective on life completely changes. Satan still seeks to whisper to us, you're so pathetic. But you have to bid the devil be gone with John's language. See what kind of love the Father has given or lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Or to get personal with the devil, so I am. I am a child of God. That's my identity. It's not a figment of my imagination. I'm not presuming here and claiming more than I'm due. I'm turning from my own thoughts to what God says about me. It would be another thing if you just said this about yourself. God says it about me. If I receive Jesus and rest in my Redeemer, I belong to my Father in a relationship of love. Brethren, what room is there for fear, for doubt, for a heavy spirit, which many of us carry around, when God Almighty says, you are mine and I love you. When Satan comes with his fiery darts and shoots them at you, 
saying, you know, maybe you're not really saved. John says, look at the love of the Father. Look at lavish love. Yes, it's true. We all need to consider our obedience. We need to consider our growth. We need to consider our love of others. We're called to bear fruit. But you must understand, your status before God is not because of you. You, above all else, look at the love that sought you. The ultimate ground of your assurance is not sought in your performance. It is laid on the foundation of lavish, overflowing, unceasing love. And the Father has secured you. His affection has separated you from the world, which doesn't know Him. And though the world looks at you as an outcast, John tells us a second time, we're not outcasts. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children. And then note the, the further statement. Now, this is a fact. It's permanent. Your relationship is solid, resting on the foundation of God's unchangeable character. Believe it. Drive out your doubts. Cast off your waffling fear. And instead, set your mind to measure the expansive nature of this love. Love as high as the heavens are above the earth. Then speak the truth to yourself. I am a child of God. I am beloved by my Father. I am safe with Him. Are you eyeing this love? But then secondly, see with me, the blessings of adoption. Verses 1 and 2 together. Now we could stand, scan the Scriptures and find more blessings of adoption than what we see here, but I want to point out two of them. First, into verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us, the children of God, is that it did not know Him. While we share the very love the Father has for His own Son, we also share the hostility the world has for Jesus. Jesus told us, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. When we are transferred into the kingdom of God, when we are given a new nature and the old things pass away, we don't have the same appetite for what used to thrill us. We don't run on in the same indulgences we used to indulge. We have a new way of thinking. Well, the world doesn't understand that. They look at us and they're totally perplexed. Here are these whirlwings at enmity with God. Satan is blinding their minds to the light of the glory of the Gospel. They can't see the beauty found in Christ. They don't understand the ways of Christ. So they're certainly not going to understand why you want to live for Christ. Why you would stand for commitment to Christ. So, what do they do? They revile you. They malign you. They mock you. They falsely accuse you. It doesn't sound like a blessing, does it? I thought this point was on the blessings of sonship. Well, hang on. How is this a blessing? It's a blessing in two ways. One, it's a blessing because our suffering identifies us with Jesus. And Jesus said His people would be blessed for being persecuted. You remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you when others revile you persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. You have a blessing because of attachment to Jesus. And then secondly, we are heirs of God and co-heirs together with Christ 
If indeed, Romans 8, 17, we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. What did Jesus say the entry point to discipleship was? What do you have to do? You deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. If we refuse to bear the cross, we will never wear the crown. So suffering is a blessing because it fits us for glory. It shows that this world is not our home. So there's a blessing of not associating with the world and drawing the world's ire because we're tied to Jesus. But then there's another blessing of sonship here, which John mentions, and it's the hope of of the future. Verse 2, Beloved, we are children of God. Now, we're already citizens of heaven. Now, we're already tasting every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. However, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be Excuse me, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Once more, John is asserting that our status as children of God is a present reality. But this time he says it in order to indicate that something even better is coming. If we already taste the sweetness of God's love, the sweetness of God's nearness, of God's forgiveness, Well, how much better will it be when the fullness of what it means to be a child of God is experienced? It's not yet experienced as it will be. We have not yet tasted the great things to come to us as the sons of God. For instance, the fullness of our heavenly inheritance is not yet here. You can all look in the mirror this morning and see that. Your bodies have not yet been raised incorruptible. Death, pain, sickness, sin, they're still with you. When's this going to happen that we can escape these things? John says it will happen when He appears. When Jesus appears, we will be like Him. What a mind-boggling statement that is. We will be like Him. Perfect as He is perfect conform to the body of His glory. And when we look at this, we should stand amazed. Yes, we're children of God now. We're loved by God now. We're forgiven now. But we're also those haggard by sin now. When Paul looks at his life in Romans 7, you remember his assessment, wretched man that I am. Why does he say that? Because the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. What he doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing. He has the desire to do what is right, but evil is always right there. The old man hounds my steps. Paul comes to say, there's nothing good in me that is in my flesh. So with this battle raging inside of us, and we're failing, can it truly be that I have the hope of seeing Jesus as He is and being like Him? I mean, here I am laboring to stay focused on the things of God. But I can't even sing a hymn without wandering thoughts. My mind, my spiritual appetites are so weak. But we're being promised a day when we'll have glorified bodies and souls completely free from the horror and distraction of sin. The curse 
will no longer rack our bodies. This world will no longer fill us with affliction. All of our sorrows will turn into joy. And why will this happen? Because the Father lavished His love upon us to make us His children. Being the children of God, dear friend, is not just about comfort in the present life of trouble. It's also about a future life of glory where there's uninterrupted communion with God when all of your tears will be wiped away. And you can take this hope of the glory of God to the bank. Because John says this with resolute confidence. We know, not that we wish, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. How does John know that? How can he speak with this kind of assurance? It's because his sureness rests on God's unfailing covenant love, a promise of hope, of communion with God that will never fall to the ground. God will bring His purpose to pass. He's not a man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said it? And will He not do it? Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. Lavish love will accomplish its purpose, giving us benefits now, leading to eternity. When will this happen? When He appears. The fullness of our sonship. The fullness of the love that we have been given will be grasped then. Robert Murray McShane, 19th century Scottish preacher, wrote a hymn that said the following, When this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Then you'll know better what love has been given to you. Finally, see, see this point with me. I'll make this very brief. The activity of beloved children. We are the sons of God now. We will see the fullness of our sonship later. How should that affect us today? Verse 3, everyone who, who thus hopes, or more literally striking here, I think, everyone continually having this hope in Him, in Jesus, keeps on purifying Himself just as He is pure. John's whole letter is filled with a theme of walking as Jesus walked, of walking in righteousness. Christians should be pursuing moral purity. And that's an emphasis. Now there's often a concern in Christian circles that if free grace is emphasized, which guarantees the believer the right to heaven on the basis, not of works, but on the basis of God's love and grace, that that will bring indifference to us about godly living. We'll just be apathetic to holiness. Or to put it another way, if one conveys the unconditional, unchangeable, everlasting love of God and the eternal hope gifted by love to us, then no works for God will follow. 
That concern does not at all reflect the biblical emphasis that we see in the Scriptures. Because in every case where God speaks about His grace and love in extraordinary ways, it's immediately followed up by the godly living that such grace and love produce. Ephesians 2 is one example. We've been, we who are dead in sin because of God's great love, He raised us up. He seated us in the heavenlies with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He goes on to tell us, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or Titus 2, something similar. The grace of God appeared and brought salvation to God's people. But what did that same saving grace do? That grace makes us or trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It makes us wait for Jesus to come from heaven and to have a zeal unto good works. Other examples could be given, but I think you get the idea. Christians who taste the lavish love of God do not run off like a pig back to the mire. The focus here on who we are, those loved by God, and what is coming for us, life with Christ in glory, makes us live better now. Indeed, the one who ponders the love of God is driven in gratitude to love God in return. We're getting ready for that world to come. So we purify ourselves. Think of it like this. Maybe an illustration will give you some help. We're heading on a trip to a foreign land. What do we do? We prepare for the trip. We book flights and hotels. We acquire passports and adapters for our little electronic gizmos. We think about the weather, a lot about the weather. We'll be raining there, so I need to take sunscreen. And as the trip draws near, the signs of our departure are everywhere. Our, our bags are packed, itineraries are made, and so on. Well, the believer has a trip ahead. It's a permanent transition from this fallen world to the new heavens and new earth. And the question is this, where's the proof that you're getting ready to go? Where's the evidence that you're looking to that world to come and already ready to be there? Is it clear in our daily behavior that this world is not our home? What evidence should there be? Well, John's evidence here is purity. No one who is born of God, he'll go on to say in this chapter, practices sin. Sin is not the pattern of the believer's life. Yes, we sin, but we hate it. We're trying to put it away, put it off, kill it. Why is sin not our practice? Because we've been born of God. We've been given life from above. We've been delivered from the power of sin, which kept us in bondage. We're now in Christ, and His disposition becomes our disposition. We put off what grieves Him, and we want to do what pleases Him. So we pursue Purity. And what motive drives us to this action? Love. Love. We want to love the Lord our God who loved us. Well, brethren, are we living a life of love? And we could examine this pursuit of purity from love in many areas of our life. I'm going to leave that, you to do that. What about your thoughts? your recreations, the use of your money, 
the satisfaction of the desires of your body? Are you living from a motive of love to the Lord, having been lavishly loved? Do you have a desire to love the Lord back? Saying with the hymn writer, Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. I commit myself to You. And I run in the pathway of Your commandments because You've set my heart free. Because Your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise You. Dear beloved in the Lord, has this soul-satisfying, hope-stirring love touched You and changed You so that Your desires are totally different and You are longing for that world that is to come. May the lavish love of God be understood by us, that we would take it in in all of its wonder, ponder the blessings given, and pursue purity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do stand amazed and we confess that our sin is that we're not amazed as we should be. Lord, we pray that You would pardon us and renew us. Give us the eyes of faith that look upon what You have done in calling us Your own children and spilling the blood of Your Son that we could be drawn near and make our hearts swell with affection. Make our thoughts be turned toward You. Make our wills choose what is pleasing in Your sight. Help our footsteps go in the pathway of Your commandments. And Lord, we ask this because we want to love You as we should. So work in our hearts by the power of Your Spirit to produce that love that You indeed have given. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.